Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who participate in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our short series, Walking Through the Book of Jonah, and here we're going to be discussing Jonah chapter 3. And to start off our discussion, we have uh, Alistair Roberts. In chapter 3, we finally arrive at the place where Jonah had been sent, to the city of Nineveh. The city has been described earlier on as the great city, and it's described that way again. There are a lot of greats throughout the story of Jonah. There's a great fish, there's a great wind, there's a great fear, there's a great joy later on, there's um, a great calm. All of these things are connected together by the use of that term. The city is threatened with destruction within 40 days. And that destruction is not immediately brought upon it, but is announced to it by the prophet Jonah. And in the announcement of the, of the judgment, there is a window of opportunity for repentance. And indeed, the city does repent. This becomes a matter of um, grievance for Jonah, who was hoping that the city would not repent or be delivered on account of its sins and its threat that it posed to Israel. But it does indeed repent, and there's a more general repentance, so general that it includes everyone from the greatest to the least, children and animals included. The animals are fasting and wearing sackcloth and ashes along with the human beings. Led by the king, there seems to be a turning away from the idols, a turning to the Lord, and a recognition of the Lord's hand and justice and judgment. This, it would seem, is a great success for the prophet, but he's none too pleased about it, as we'll see later on. Yeah, it has to be important here for people to recognize that the people of Nineveh and the king actually repented and received forgiveness and grace and new life. Um, and I'm really kind of amazed. I preached through this book um, in, in 2019. And in reading commentaries, I was amazed at how many evangelical commentators said that this was not a real conversion. In fact, one very prominent, I'm not going to mention his name, uh, Presbyterian uh, in the United States said, quote, there is no evidence of conversion to faith in the Lord in this chapter. and. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out why they say that, especially given verse, for example, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. You know, it's like Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. And they call a fast and put on sackcloth. That seems to be like the external evidence of a real internal change from the greatest of them to the least. And the only thing I can come up with is that too many people are in the grip of this mistaken notion that somehow in order to be truly saved in the Old Testament, people had to become Jews. Um, That true conversion meant being circumcised and being incorporated into Israel, and that's just a big mistake. Um, The Jews were God's priestly people. They were definitely holy in a sense that the Gentiles weren't in terms of their calling, their vocation, their ministry. But there are plenty of examples, and this is what's so hard for me to comprehend, so many examples of Gentiles, believers, in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, at the time of Israel. They didn't necessarily become Jews, but they certainly 
forsook their idols, as seems to be, as it, I mean, it doesn't seem to be, it's obviously the case here with Nineveh. These are people that are a model of true repentance and faith. And even, even Jesus says this in Matthew 12. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up in the day of judgment and condemn the leaders of Jerusalem for their unbelief. They responded to the preaching of Jonah, but the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did not respond to the greater Jonah and the signs and the words that he brought to them. I wonder if part of the issue could be if people have a very rigid definition of, of well, not definition, but a very rigid covenant um, framework. I've heard people kind of discuss things like, well, which covenant did the Ninevites join at this point? Were they sort of engrafted into Moses's covenant with Israel or something like this? And I wonder if that could be influencing some commentators' views as to whether this is then genuine salvation. Suspect in addition to that, there's also the belief that there has to be a very propositional and um, creedal faith, as it were, which is quite highly developed rather than simply a belief in the word that has been given and a response that is appropriate to it. Mm. And I wonder whether that is one of the problems that we have in understanding the way that faith is presented in many parts of the scripture, where it's focusing upon this approach of confidence in the Lord, belief in his warnings and response that is appropriate to those things. And that is a faith that can be enjoyed by people with all sorts of degrees of knowledge. It's not something that's exclusive to people who have a very developed theological understanding. And indeed, it can be expressed by the youngest children. And it seems to me that people who have an understanding, for instance, of the fact that children can have faith, would have less of a problem with the repentance of somewhere like Nineveh. I think a pointer in the direction that, as Jeff has suggested, this is genuine salvation and genuine repentance is the large number of parallels between uh, chapter 3 of Jonah and Exodus chapter 32. So Nineveh here is said to be a great city which has done evil and in a parallel way Israel there is described as a great nation um, which has committed a great sin um, in the eyes of the Lord. Also there's then the sort of the 40 day um, period which is uh, attached to the events there's the interesting detail that just as the king of Nineveh commands his cattle not to eat fodder you know when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to uh, commune um, with the Lord he uses exactly the same words of command um, about not allowing the cattle to to graze on the mountain and they're all sorts of much closer um, uh, exact sort of verbal parallels to do with how um, the Lord relents um, and in particular relents from the evil which he has said he's going to do there's a sort of exact um, word for word parallel there and so those many parallels i think would really reinforce the fact that this is this is salvation which is taking place here what do you think we should make of the three days journey there are a number of examples of three days journeys of course we think of Genesis chapter 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac and again an averted event and then there is the three days journey into the wilderness to worship the Lord that is the original plan of the exodus 
am I reading this correctly in verse 3 and um, 4 that he begins this three-day journey uh, because it's three days, the breath of the city is three days, but he goes a day's journey and he calls out 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown and the people believe God. It doesn't appear like he even made it <laughs> past mm -hmm. day one before they all repented. Um, but of course, the three days in scriptures, obviously there's three days is a time, after three days, it's time of, of death and resurrection, a time of new life, new beginnings. Um, things happen after three days. So there's at least that reference here that there's going to be a new life, a new start for Nineveh, a kind of resurrection from the dead. Both Jonah and Nineveh, in a sense, have new starts here, don't they? Jonah is given the opportunity, I guess, to do what he was meant to do um, in, in the first place. And Nineveh will um, have an opportunity for, um, in a sense, for God to do what he said he was not going to do, um, I, I, not to destroy them. And so there seems to be this interesting parallel between Jonah and the, and the Ninevites going on. Hmm. Yes, we've got the three days and the three nights of Jonah in the belly of the fish. And then we've got the three days of the breadth of the city, if that's what it's referred to. Alternatively, if it's the journey to the city, we've got three days followed by three days, followed by one more day, which would make it the seventh day. Certainly possible. Yeah. That would be interesting insofar as it would tie in with the um way in which the dove uh, spends seven days within the ark and those connections you've made um alistair with jonah and the dove before and yes yeah, so it would be the second mission then hmm. we've talked about the the mission the vocation of the prophet and prophets uh, have a special duty in the book of kings at least to speak to the kings to the uh, uh, to his majesty they're supposed to be the voice of Yahweh to help the kings discern how to behave and when to repent and all that and it has to be again I'm trying to enter into Jonah's psyche here it has to be maddening for Jonah to come to this great city and to call out judgment and to have the king respond to him something that none of the kings in the north ever really did at least we don't have record of anything like this um, so here is Jonah the prophet ordinarily a prophet to the kings of northern Israel but now coming to the king of Nineveh and you know after a day or so he's repenting removing his robes covering himself with sackcloth sitting in ashes and issuing a proclamation throughout all of Nineveh that everybody should follow his example. That's something that never happened in northern Israel. And again, Jonah, it has to drive Jonah crazy. Again, which is why we can, I think, appreciate some of his response, uh, the, the kind of response he has in Jonah 4. Yeah, the, the response of the king feels like it's kind of the last straw for Jonah. So as he's going through the city and people are repenting and putting on sackcloth, it's obviously at that stage still possible um, that the king could squelch this whole thing and could sort of brutally just suppress the repentance which is going on. Um, but this is a, 
initially, you know, grassroots um, revival, but then it gets the official um, authority from the king. And I think at that point, it, it's sort of sealed that things are not going to go the way Jonah plans. It's interesting that the Lord's word of judgment is actually um, serving as an opportunity for repentance. It's not just the word of judgment is actually a form of grace, um, which might surprise us. But here the king sees in that word of judgment, why would the Lord tell us this unless there were some hope? And so snatching on to that sliver of hope, um, encouraging the people to repent, it seems like Israel should learn this lesson. Israel's been given so many words the Lord has persistently sent his prophets to them and they have not taken his judgments, that thinnest sliver of hope as a basis for repentance. Um, They've even been given promises that are far greater than this if they just respond to them, but they won't even take the greater things that they're given, whereas Nineveh will snatch at anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also, again, reminds us about what prophecy is all about. It's not just predicting events in the future. This seems like a categorical statement with no conditions attached. But as you say, Elser, it's meant to lead them to repentance. Um, it, and it, I'm reminded, again, of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18, where uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That's exactly what is happening here. Um, uh, God could have destroyed these people and ministered death to them, but then they bring it on themselves, basically. They, um, they, they say, they confess in their actions, the sackcloth, the ashes, uh, that they deserve death the rituals of sackcloth and fasting and ashes is all about their confession that they deserve to die it's kind of a dramatic way of praying and the external actions express how they really feel and think and what they believe and the lord responds to that we've noted the parallels with the story of the flood at various points and james has mentioned connections with the story of israel and the golden calf in chapters 32 to 34 of Exodus. And it seems to me that both of those stories are themselves connected. So this is part of a longer um, series of reflections upon the significance of forgiveness and the Lord relenting from disaster. Um, We have references to the Lord relenting in the story of Genesis, and that's relenting from or repenting of his decision to create man, um, his desire to bring humanity to destruction on account of its violence that has come up before him. Now violence has come up from Nineveh and the Lord is going to destroy it. And in the story of um, the following the story of Israel's sin with the golden calf, there's a similar series of events. The Lord says that he's going to destroy the people. He relents of uh, his purpose and bring them out of Egypt he's going to start again with Moses alone. And then Moses intercedes for the people and the Lord relents from the destruction that he's going to bring upon them. 
and he restores the people at the end in fellowship with him. And this passage is drawing attention back to that, the same statement the Lord makes in revealing his character to Moses at Sinai in chapters 33 and 34 is something that Jonah refers, refers to in chapter 4 here, that the Lord is slow to anger, he will forgive. And these very stories draw our mind back to the previous accounts, the 40 days of the waters rising, the 40 days of Moses going on the mountain and interceding for the people and these sorts of events. It seems that they're all part of a broader commentary upon the Lord's character and Mm. his forgiveness. Mm. And and at the same time, they kind of juxtapose Jonah's slightly strange attitude in that Moses is willing to die um, in order that his people might be spared. But in the next chapter, we're going to see Jonah wants to die precisely because the Ninevites have been spared. And there's that, whole setting of chapter four even has a, an additional um, connection with Exodus 32 to 34, because between 32 and 34, we just get this slightly uh, unusual incident, which is chronologically out of place, where um, Moses would go and um, enter the tent and commune um, with the Lord and receive judgment. And it pictures, I think, what goes on in chapter four, when Jonah sort of sets up this uh, sukkah, this um, shelter of some kind and and communicates with the Lord there. I think this goes back to my observation about evangelicals, particularly reformed evangelicals, when they deal with texts like this. Um, I I wonder sometimes if, if we don't want God to be this generous with his mercy. Um, Perhaps God is much more generous with his mercy than we're used to thinking. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're, it's almost like because we're Reformed, we think God is stingy or miserly or parsimonious with regard to the extent of his grace. Um, and here we see, as, as you pointed out a little earlier, Alistair, um, they don't have to come to, you know, some intellectual understanding of who Yahweh is in propositional form with the confessions and everything. They just need to respond to his word. And they do that. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded, I think it's the, I, I should have wrote, wrote this down. I think it's the second Helvetic confession uh, where there's, there's a paragraph on election where and I believe this is a quote where we should have a good hope for all people. (laughs) Um, And there's this warning there not to be too restrictive in our understanding of who God chooses and how we determine who we think God chooses. Um, And here I think uh, is, I think it's one of the lessons that we ought to learn from uh, Jonah chapter three. The question of the lessons that we take from these chapters, I think, is a good one to consider in the case of the people who are first reading this prophecy in the Northern Kingdom, presumably. Mm. What were they expected to take from this? Um, Is it just a message about the Lord's grace towards Gentile nations? It's that. But it's also a message to to Israel. They might think um, the attitude that you hear from the Southern Kingdom the um, fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, the sense of being doomed to destruction, that there's no hope of forgiveness. But here's 
a brutal Gentile nation and they're condemned to destruction in 40 days. And yet the Lord is delighted to have mercy upon them when they repent. It seems that this should be taken up as a, a great message of reassurance to Israel that they too can turn back to the Lord. If they would only try his mercy, they would find that it would be more than enough for them. And isn't this how God uses Gentiles to teach his people, teach Israel a lesson all through? I mean, this goes back to Deuteronomy 32, which we mentioned before, that uh, is, he's going to make his people jealous. Um, and it, 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 you can fast forward also up into the New Testament, into the book of Acts. The, whole, uh, the Jews are either enraged by the Gentiles uh, coming to Jesus, or they're provoked to jealousy in the sense that they realize what's going on and, and how they're being, they're being shown an example um, about true faith and repentance. Uh, but that's the way God uses, that's the way God uses this, um, this bipolar relationship between Israel and the Gentiles often in the stories. Mm. To come back to one of your previous comments, Jeff, you mentioned Jeremiah 18, I think it was, and how um, the Lord has said specifically that um, if a, a nation responds to his, his word, he will relent of what he said he's going to do. And that seems to be very typical of prophecy, that there is this imperative to it and, and this sense that if you respond, then God, God will respond. Um, and in chapter 3, there's this sort of interesting dynamic in that Jonah's initial message doesn't seem like it has that element. Now, there might be a way in which it can be read in two different ways, which we could come back to. But on the face of it, it is just a statement of judgment. There is no um, imperative connected to it. There is no possibility, it, it seems, of anything different happening, as it were. And in verse 9, this statement, who knows, God may turn and, and relent, is, is a direct quotation of... Um, uh, somewhere in Joel, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was towards the end of um, chapter two in, in the book of Joel, kind of word for word. And then it ends with the, so that we may not perish, which is um, precisely what the sailors don't, don't want to happen to them in, in chapter one. And so um, it does get this open-ended quality to it. Um, but as a result of really the nation's repentance and the king's declaration, rather than Jonah's initial prophecy. Um. But James, that's that's the way it's framed in Jeremiah 18. Um, the Lord says, "If at any time I declare concerning a nation, I'm going to pluck you up, break you down, destroy it." There's no conditions attached to it. But then, if the nation turns, then I will relent. So often, I think I, I think, and I may be wrong about this, but I just. I think that implied in every statement of judgment is the opportunity to repent and the, oh, look, God doesn't need to warn us about anything. The fact that he does warn us is uh, a mercy. Um, so to announce judgment is to alert people that, uh-oh, um, there's something wrong here and I need to I need to repent and change so that even if the judgment is stated in categorical uh, in a categorical form, it still has within it 
just because it's uttered, the possibility of uh, of change of, of of mercy. That I think does highlight something about the character of scriptural prophecy more generally. We can often read scriptural prophecy as if it were just um, some sort of prediction of all that's going to happen, sort of Nostradamus in riddles and mysteries declaring some things that will happen in the distant future. But it's a deeply relational word. God is speaking to his covenant people, and he's speaking to them as those who are expected to respond. And when they fail to respond, they are judged. When they respond in a faithful way and repent, and if they turn to him in faith, there is hope so often held out, even if that's just being delivered as individuals from um, a disaster that's going to fall upon the people more generally. But there is always that hint of hope. Yeah, that, that seems right. And yet, in practice, it seems to me that when that happens, it's generally postponement rather than something more permanent. And so Nineveh, soon willful, as um, Nahum makes clear, if you think of other examples, um, Ahab, let's say, is um, prophesied against um, by Elijah, isn't he? And, and initially it's it's said, you know, I will not bring this disaster on you. And then, um, you know, very next chapter, Ahab's back to his old tricks and disaster does come upon him. And it, it, it strikes me that those sorts of things are more postponements than, I don't know what you, what would you call it, rather than an undoing of a prophecy. I think we have postpone, postponements. We also have deliverance through judgment. So there are people like Ebed, Melech and um, Jeremiah who are promised and Baruch that are promised deliverance through the judgment that's about to befall Judah in the book of Jeremiah. Um, there are also examples, for instance, in the New Testament where Christ tells his disciples that they will be delivered through the disaster that's going to come upon the city. And so it, it seems to me that there is more than just the example of um, postponement. There can also be um, deliverance through judgment mm. there can also be ways in which the judgment is fulfilled in a surprising way mm. um, where there is uh, an overthrowing for instance here of Nineveh if Nineveh is in some sense overthrown but it's overthrown through repentance rather than through general destruction there is an emphasis here in this chapter on the apparently on the repentance even of animals, um, which kind of fits in with this broader theme of the book, the way in which the world seems to take on these personal traits and ships threaten to break up and the sea becomes angry and, and that kind of thing. Um, what, what are we to make of the, um, the animals wearing sackcloth and calling out mightily to the Lord here? Well, the very least, the connection between humans and human life and animals and animal life and uh, animals image man. Um, and also uh, just that there's this interconnection between the way the Ninevites are behaving or misbehaving and how their environment then responds to that or how God responds to that so that when the Ninevites repent, when they believe God, 
when the king also proclaims this fast and uh, this uh, these ritual forms of repentance, uh, the whole culture is going to change. And along with that, also the connection with the created world. Uh, so th- there's this interconnection between the way the way we relate to God and the way God's creation then uh, relates to us or doesn't relate to us. So uh, a kind of restoration of proper, oh, I don't know, proper relations between man and beast and the created world um, and uh, the Ninevites, something like that, at least. We have examples of faithful animals um, in the two chap or the chapters around um, this. So we have a worm that is appointed in um, chapter four. We have a big fish that is appointed in chapter one. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Lord speaking to the fish at the end of chapter two. And it seems like in its proper ordering, animals are responsive to the word of the Lord and they can be an example to human beings. Mm-hmm. And here, the inclusion of the animals might also draw our mind back to other occasions where there is a more general judgment to the story of the plagues upon Egypt, where the animals are very much included in the judgment or in accounts such as the ark, where the animals have to be gathered together and preserved along with human life. And so at the end of the book, we're told that Nineveh is a city that the Lord takes pity upon, not just because of the great number of persons who are there, but also because there's a great many cattle. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.